0: Dear Father, how great thou art, how incomparable, how unsearchable are your ways, your wisdom, and your love. We thank you here tonight, Father, that you have, by your grace, brought together such an unlikely group of men and women, none of us noble, none of us wise, none of us worthy of anything you've given us, Father. We stand here today merely because of your love for us. And we thank you, Father. We thank you in ways that go beyond words. And we thank you from the depth of our heart. For apart from you, Father, we would be like the rest of the world. We would be lost without any understanding of who you are and what was coming for us. And, Father, we stand here today enabled, enabled by your Spirit to understand these things, to know you, to know what's coming, to appreciate the wisdom of what you've given in your word, but we don't have these things, Father, just for ourselves. You've brought us to this point for some better purpose, for some greater glory, for some opportunity that you would like us to serve you in. And we come here today, Father, so we can prepare for that. This is an address rehearsal. This is our time to learn, to be encouraged, to pray for one another, to to counsel one another, just to be with one another so that in this week to come or in a month or a year from now, whenever it would be according to your will, we'd be prepared for something difficult, for something trying or for something challenging, but something important where we must be ready for challenge, we must be ready for trial, but we must be dependent on you most of all. So, Father, I pray you'd use today for that purpose. And I know, Father, in this room right now, there are men and women who have needs that have perhaps been shared or perhaps not. And they may be needs, Father, that are impacting their very ability to hear you or to work with you, or to follow you and obey. Perhaps a marriage, Father, that is at risk. Perhaps health problems that are holding back. Perhaps, Father, there's money issues or children issues or, Father, you know them, I don't. So, Father, as we all pray together now, silently in our own place, we lift these things up. We lift up our personal needs to you. You hear our hearts. We intercede on behalf of those around us, even among us, people we don't know or needs we have not learned about. But you know. Hear our intercession, Father, by the blood of Christ we come before you. And we appeal to you as a child to a father that you'd bring healing That you'd end strife, that you would cure disease. That you'd make provision available, that you'd address the hurts and the needs and all of the desires that are in this room, but only according to your will and only for the purpose of your glory. And help us in the meantime, Father, to understand and to be comforted. And as we turn to your word, Father, build us up. Build us up and make us like your son tear down those parts that are different, that are not him, that are sin, or stand between you and I. And Father, I'd ask that you replace it with your wisdom today as we go into your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, open your Bibles. Let me uh, open with you to Matthew chapter 8. We have started this chapter. We're just picking up again now. And as we do, it's been a few weeks, so I want to try to put your mind back into where we were in this chapter. And I'm going to take you way back, actually, back to Moses. You remember when Moses spoke to the people of Israel? following That's yeah, way, way, way back, but don't worry, I'm not going to cover everything in between. Um, but when Moses spoke to the people of Israel following the Exodus, you remember he promised them at a point in time that there would be a prophet sent to Israel by the Lord who would be like Moses, in a sense, who would be another deliverer. And you hear that in a couple places, but particularly in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This new prophet that Moses mentioned, he says, would be raised up from within Israel, and he would be far greater than Moses was. And that's because even though Moses freed God's people from slavery in Egypt, this new prophet was going to free Israel from slavery to sin. It's a much harder problem. And although Moses offered Israel an opportunity to enter into Canaan, this new prophet was going to usher in Israel's entry into the eternal kingdom. And just as Moses' ministry was accompanied by great miracles in the Exodus, so would the ministry of this new Moses, whenever he came, include miraculous signs. And Matthew understood that Jesus was that Messiah, that prophet that was foretold by Moses. So, as I mentioned last time in this chapter, when he set about to write chapters 8 and 9, which is a narrative over a number of miracles that Jesus did in the Galilee, he draws upon the Exodus story for his inspiration and the way he organizes these chapters. Specifically, in these two chapters, Matthew records ten miracles that Jesus performed somewhere in those early weeks and months of his ministry in the Galilee. And we know from the other Gospels, as I mentioned last time, that these ten miracles in Matthew did not happen in the sequence that Matthew presents them here, or even in the same general period of time. Instead, Matthew takes artistic license in how he compiles these ten incidents so that he could tell a larger story in the course of relating them. He creates this single narrative, and in the course of it, he gives you an overview of sorts of all that Jesus was doing. This is a good sample, if you will, of the kind of miracles he was doing. But more importantly than that, he's drawing our attention back to the Exodus story and to Jesus' connection to Moses as the fulfillment of that prophet that Moses said would come. Now keep in mind that as we study this chapter and the one that follows, you're not going to see these ten miracles paralleling what was done in the Exodus exactly. I mean, you're not going to find Jesus working with flies or frogs or blood or any of that in this chapter. They only connect in loose ways. For example, they connect simply by the fact that there's ten in both cases. But secondly, remember the first miracle we covered last time in chapter 8, the very beginning of this chapter, was the healing of leprosy the first Jew who had ever been healed of leprosy since the law had been given. And if you remember how Moses' ministry got off to a start, it had a somewhat similar beginning as well with a miraculous demonstration of a healing of leprosy. Only it went this way. In Exodus 4, 6, we read this. The Lord furthermore said to Moses, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Remember this? Then the Lord said, put your hand back into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then he adds, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. Now that's actually the first recorded healing of leprosy in the Bible. And Jesus performs in his first miracle in in Matthew a healing of leprosy. It's a loose connection, but it's intended to draw your attention. So Matthew places Jesus' healing of leprosy at the start of his section to emphasize that connection. And then, as we noted last time, this was the Messianic miracle, one of three. If you looked a little further down this section, just to finish this thought for you, if you looked a little further into the ten miracles, you're going to find Jesus later showing command over a stormy sea of Galilee. Does that evoke a memory of Moses parting the waters of the Red Sea, perhaps? So in all of these things, Matthew is just making an implication. He's not making it the main point. He just wants to draw your connection to the fact that this is the greater Moses that was promised to Israel. And one final note on this, Matthew divides his account here in chapters 8 and 9 into three sections, and those three sections are themselves punctuated by short scenes that relate Jesus' power to his authority. So here's how they go. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. If not, it's not that big a deal. I like this kind of stuff. When I study scripture, I like to see how it all kind of charts out. Me and three other people in here like this. So let's just, <laughs> let's just get this out of the way. So you have the first section that opens up chapter 8. That's miracles over the body. Miracles over the body. Then that section is followed by a scene that demonstrates Jesus' authority over his disciples. And then you have the second grouping of miracles, and that is over creation itself, and then that's followed by a scene depicting Jesus' authority over his enemies. One final section of miracles, and that relates to the spiritual realm, demons and such. So when you put all those together, you know what you find? By the end of chapter 9, Matthew has shown in all of those things that Jesus has power and authority over everything, whether in heaven or on earth. Because look at the list. He has command over the body and the soul. He has authority over his followers and his enemies. And he rules over this world and the next. He's left nothing out. So he's carefully constructed ten miracles and little scenes interspersed so that in two chapters you get the whole picture of who this man is. So let's look at the second of his healing miracles now. This is still in that first group of miracles over the body. We pick up in chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. All right, now I'm stopping there to set up what this is all about. This second miracle, we're told, takes place in Jesus' home base, if you want to call that, his headquarters in the Galilee, which is a small fishing village called Capernaum, and it's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. If you go with me to Israel next year, this, we'll, we'll stop and we'll see this fishing village. This is the hometown of both Peter and Andrew. Earlier we learned in the gospel that Jesus had moved his family, his mother and his brothers, had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum as he began his ministry. So it's from Capernaum that he did all of his Galilee ministry. And now he's come off the hillside where he did the Sermon on the Mount, and he's come down into this town of Capernaum. And as he enters, we're told that he receives this request from a Roman centurion. Now, a centurion was an officer in the army of Rome, and he got his name because centurions were responsible for a hundred people, which is where the word centurion comes from. So it's a man of uh, some importance, some, some authority. And he comes to Jesus, and the most important question that we have to ask as we open up this story is, why would a, a Gentile Roman centurion come to a Jewish rabbi for help? Uh, normally when a Roman would need supernatural intervention of this kind, He would appeal to his own gods in his pagan temples. He would make sacrifice in the way that Romans did. He wouldn't go to a Jewish rabbi. And moreover, as you probably know, Rome was not exactly friendly with Israel. Romans and Jews were not on friendly terms. They interacted only when absolutely necessary. So then you'd ask, well, why did he even think that Jesus would be inclined to help a man like him? And if you go a step further and you go to Luke's gospel, you find out that the centurion didn't even presume to come to Jesus himself and ask this question personally. Instead, in Luke's account, we learn that the centurion actually spoke to Jesus through others. Matthew doesn't choose to record that because it's not very important to what Matthew's trying to emphasize. But from Luke's gospel, we get that out of detail. That he sent a group of Jewish elders from the cities of Capernaum, to talk to Jesus on his behalf. And they were willing to do that because they told Jesus that this centurion's been unusually helpful. He's been kind and helpful to the local synagogue and to the Jews in the city. And so because of that, they're willing to go and advocate for him before Jesus. They testify to his good works and to his kindness. I think the Roman centurion probably assumed that without that kind of endorsement from the local Jewish population, he wasn't going to have much chance to woo Jesus's interests. So... Let's see if we can deconstruct his thinking here a little bit. What what was in that guy's head? Why was he doing this? First, you notice he calls Jesus Lord. Not rabbi, not teacher, but Lord. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's God. That term has multiple meanings. But what it does mean is that you view Jesus as a master. That's what the word means literally in, in Greek, master. Or let's just say a man of authority. And so he's acknowledging Jesus is more than a teacher. That suggests that he knows Jesus has some kind of real authority. And then secondly, he's here for something very unusual. He's seeking help for a sick servant. And that's notable because in Roman culture, servants, or the word here in Greek is literally a young slave, they're expendable. Slaves are commodities. (laughs) You wear them out and then you replace them. You don't fix them. There was really no great concern over a sick slave. Yeah, maybe he got well, maybe he didn't. If he didn't, we'll get another one. That's how people saw that role in society. And certainly a Roman centurion would not have gone to the effort that he is taking right now in seeking care for such a person in his household. This is a very odd situation as well. And then finally, you notice the servant's sickness is described as a fever that paralyzes and torments that slave terribly Now, the centurion knew Jesus was not a doctor, and yet somehow he expects Jesus to have the potential to heal this guy of something this severe. And even the description itself raises a question, because the ailment, as it's described here, would seem to suggest that the affliction might be the result of demonic possession as much as anything. That word torment suggests that. And if so, then what we're seeing is a centurion who chooses to seek after a Jewish rabbi in recognition that that rabbi had some kind of authority to heal something that involved both the body and the spirit. That's a pretty dramatic expectation. That's a pretty serious conclusion. So what do we conclude about this man in light of his own conclusions about Jesus? He sees Jesus as a spiritual authority. He himself has a history of showing regard for God's people, uh, even though in, in earthly terms he was their enemy. Uh, He demonstrates uncommon love and concern for the weak and vulnerable under his care. And then finally he believes Jesus has the power to heal the body and the spirit. Look, the only logical conclusion you can draw about this Roman is he's been touched by the spirit of God. He's come to believe not only in the God of Israel, but also in the Messiah, in Jesus Simply put, he's a believer, as we would say today. And his actions then would be a reflection of that heart of faith. And I want you to look, Jesus' response to him in verse 7 would give us added evidence of that because he just immediately says, I'll come heal the servant. That would seem to suggest that Jesus sees this man as one of him, as one of his sheep, so to speak. So here we find the first Gentile in Matthew's gospel showing faith in Messiah. And you remember the themes of Matthew's gospel? We introduced this on the very first night of the study, as you see in chapter 1 in that genealogy that opens up Matthew's gospel, that Matthew was interested in showing us Jesus as fulfilling two covenants, the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. That is, in the Davidic covenant, he was the fulfillment to Israel of the promised new David. And to the world at large, Jesus was that fulfillment of Abraham's promise to bless all nations, that is, including the Gentiles. Well, now you see the the chapter opening up with a blessing to a Jew who's healed of leprosy, a profound first-time event in the history of Israel that proves this is the Messiah, followed quickly by a miracle done for the first Gentile in the story. It seems very clear that Matthew is reinforcing his two themes as he comes into this chapter. And even more remarkable than that, look at who God has chosen to be the honorable first jew in this gospel to be saved to be healed and to be seen as a believer he is a roman who must have greatly suffered or have been at least constrained in his ability to live out his faith in that culture i mean think about it you have a centurion here who's charged with guarding roman interest in judea which usually means at the expense of jews right they're the enemy And as an officer of the Roman army, he would have been expected to engage in worship of the emperor, worshiping pagan gods. That would have been a part of the duty of a Roman officer, showing loyalty to the Caesar. And as this man embraced Jehovah, you would have expected him to immediately have been conflicted over whether he follows his heart or he obeys the culture in which his position required. And yet somehow, in spite of all of that, in spite of his position in Roman society, it didn't prevent him from keeping the two greatest commandments. He has shown love for God, and he has shown love for his fellow man. Now, I don't think that means it came easy. I don't think it came without cost. And I love to think about guys like this, because we breeze past them in the Gospels without thinking enough about what that person had to deal with, and what would we have dealt with if we had been him. I mean, I wonder if he paid a price for the support that he gave to that local Jewish synagogue, or if that kindness may have raised some suspicions from his superiors. Where's your loyalty here, Mr. Centurion? When he sought the help of a Jewish rabbi for his sick slave, do you think the men under his command may have thought, our centurion's gone soft? Right? That's not going to inspire them to follow. Or when his duties required that he pay homage to Roman gods in the local pagan temple, do you think he struggled with his conscience as he went into that moment? Obviously, we're not going to find the answers to those questions. But I do think it's safe to assume that he faced challenges like that. And yet, as I said, he found a way to deal with them. And I think the easiest explanation you have is that there's always a way within any given moment to find some path that lets you remain a witness without exiting this world. Because if it weren't that way, if it weren't possible, why would he leave us in the world? For example, maybe he explained his desire to fund the local synagogue as simply a way of maintaining Jewish support in the town, keeping the peace. Maybe he defended his regard for servants as proof to his man that he was a commander who looked out for those under his charge. Maybe he made appearances in the Roman temple, but prayed silently to the God of Israel. You know, there's always a way. There's always a way. Not a way of compromise, I'm not saying that. But there is a way to be a great example in your devotion to Christ without retreating from participation in the world. And too often, I think Christians have seen that as the only two choices they have. They either live in the world and give in to it, or they retreat from it, set up a compound somewhere, dress funny, and don't talk to anybody. I realize that's an exaggeration for what most of us do, but there is subtle forms of that even in our everyday life, where we're just afraid to mix too much with the world, or lest they stain us. In my experience, it's usually the other way around. We're often the ones who are bringing problems to them. Our involvement in the world, friends, is how we bring light into darkness. Sometimes those two worlds work really easily together, and then there's sometimes when you have to make some difficult choices and they carry risks, so be it. But the point is to look for that way, to be light in darkness, not light outside the darkness or next to the darkness or ten miles from the darkness. You have to be where the people are. And you just have to remember Jesus' own ministry. He went to the places that he knew there'd be a prostitute or a tax collector. He didn't engage in prostitution or tax collecting. He just went to where the people were. And then he ministered to them. Just let's do our best to stay engaged in the world and faithful to our witness and not afraid at times to take a few risks with your job, with your friendships, with your family if necessary. So, you know, we can lose some of those along the way if that's what God requires for us to maintain our witness. But that's what this man probably had to face. And now look where you find him. You find him. Appealing to the Messiah and being the first one, at least in Matthew's gospel, among Gentiles who even knew he was the Messiah. Uh, that just reminds you that if you stay engaged in that way, sometimes that's where you're going to see the biggest miracles. That's where you're going to see God at work the most. That's what you see. So Jesus, as you saw, he agrees to go, and according to Luke's gospel, he begins to follow those Jewish elders back to the Centurion's home. But when the centurion hears, when the Centurion hears that Jesus is coming, someone must have run ahead and told him, then he quickly dispatches a second group of friends to go intercept Jesus on the way and give him a second message. We hear that from Luke's gospel. And here's the message, Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another... Come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So the centurion with that second group, and I'm I'm telling you he sent messengers because of what Luke gives us. So in any event, he tells Jesus, Look, you don't have to physically come to my house to, to do what I'm asking of you. He says, I'm not even worthy or deserving to have the Messiah enter into my home. And I think what he meant is two things. First of all, he undoubtedly would have known how Jews thought about this. Jews never entered a Gentile home out of concern that they would be defiled. They would be ritually unclean as a result of entering into a home that had pork or something else in it. And knowing this, the centurion does not want to defile Jesus or be a cause for Jesus to be dishonored. So he says, no, 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 you don't need to do this. I know it's not proper. And then secondly, I think he obviously had reverence. For Jesus, and in having that reverence for God's anointed, he knows it's not. I'm not worthy, as John the Baptist says. I'm not worthy to untie the the thong of his sandals, right? I mean, it's that inherent sense that holy God and sinner don't mix, and I shouldn't have you in my presence. and And that's true. But you notice Jesus was willing to go because by the grace of God, that's why he came as a man to visit the sinners of the world like this man. The centurion just didn't understand that yet. But nonetheless, he insists to Jesus, don't lower yourself and come into my home. But then he adds, here's my reason. He says, I know you have the ability to heal from a distance, so it's not necessary that we put you in that position. Now, I want you to remember, Jesus never claimed to have this ability. It's never happened this way yet. He's never said that he could do it. No one's suggesting that he can do it. And I should add, there's nothing in the Old Testament that predicts that the Messiah would have this ability. That is, to heal from a distance. And so this man has made a really remarkable assumption about what Jesus is capable of doing. Now, keep in mind, the centurion has sent this second delegation to Jesus to intercept him and tell him these things. Say, you know, you don't need to, to come which tells us something very interesting all by itself. It tells you that the centurion never expected that Jesus would come to his house in the first place. I mean, that's why he had to quickly dispatch this second group of messengers to stop Jesus when he learned that Jesus was coming. His faith was so great that he assumed from the very start that Jesus would just say something wherever he was and it would be accomplished there. He never thought to tell the first group, don't make him come. (laughs) He just assumed it wouldn't happen. All right, interestingly, that first delegation, though, was made up of Jewish elders, remember? I mentioned that. Well, they never thought to suggest to Jesus, oh, you don't need to come. You can just say it. That didn't dawn on them, did it? They were ready to escort him back to the centurion's house. Never occurred to them. And the reason it didn't occur to them is because they didn't have the faith that this centurion had. And that tells you how truly special this centurion's insight was. This man's assumption is so remarkable, in fact that he felt compelled to explain his rationale to Jesus for why he was so confident. He says through his messengers, he says, I understand how authority works. I'm a man of some authority. And being in command, he says, I know that a word is all that I require if I want to get results. And he gives a few examples, right, of go and come and do this, and, and they just respond. That is, when he issues a command, results follow. Just from his word being declared. And that's the mark of authority, by the way. You know, in business or in the military, if you can't just say what you want and have it happen, you don't have authority. If you've got to stomp your feet and scream and yell and throw things at people and make threats, you don't have any authority. Parents, there's a lesson there, too. And, and, and this is an obvious leadership principle, I know, but there's a lot more going on here than just that. Yeah, the man gets it, he knows what authority is like in that sense. The desire of a person in authority are carried out by those under his authority. That's an obvious statement. But what he's testifying here goes well beyond that. He's saying something very special about Jesus. And here's what he's saying. First, I want you to ask yourself, over what did the centurion believe Jesus had authority? Over what did Jesus have authority? That is, how did the centurion expect Jesus' word to result in a healing? And in the case of the centurion's situation, it would be easy to understand how his word leads to action, right? A soldier under his command would hear the commander's words, and then he would decide in his heart, okay, I'm going to do what I was just told, and then he would go do his order. That's not hard to understand, right? But exactly what mechanism did the centurion assume Jesus would use to exercise his authority? I mean, uh, who's going to listen to what he said? And who carries out the instructions? And is it the slave himself? Is it the demons? Is it the human body? Oh, and and that's even harder to understand when you consider that it's all happening from a distance of miles apart. How is this supposed to happen? Just think for a moment. What is the centurion assuming is going to happen? That leads us to a very profound conclusion. Somehow this man concluded that the word of this rabbi had inherent power. It had its own power of its own, of its own source. That is, as Jesus spoke, his words accomplished things in the world merely by the very existence of that word. I mean, that's profound theology. We've got guys going through seminary that struggle with that. Or out of seminary that struggle with that. But how did this guy come to that conclusion? I imagine this. I imagine that somewhere along the way in his relationship with the Jews in that city, The centurion might have been taught by some of his Jewish friends from the Jewish scriptures. And he must have learned that in those scriptures you find that all things in the universe were brought into existence by the Word of God. You know this from Genesis, obviously. Genesis chapter 1, it says, The Lord said, Let there be light, and so on. Right? The Word created things. So by the authority of His Word, God brought the creation itself into existence. If that's true, then, that that same Creator who brought everything into existence by His Word, we must assume, can also direct the course of that creation by His Word. It only stands to reason. So by logical deduction, here's what we can assume safely was in the mind of this centurion. He must have concluded that Jesus' Word was the Word of the Creator. That's the only thing you can conclude. Now, you might say, well, maybe he just thought he had connection to the Creator who did what he said. No, wait a minute. The one in authority speaks, and then there's a response. If Jesus was subjugated to God, if he was just a prophet, for example, his word can't make things happen. He can appeal to God to do it, but his word wouldn't have the power in and of itself. So by virtue of what this man says about Jesus' word, he's saying, you are the one with the authority. His word would expel demons. His word would heal the body. His word would restore that slave to health. And it didn't matter if he was on the front porch or on the other side of the world. The word of God, friends, possesses inherent power. It doesn't depend on anyone. It doesn't depend on anything. No one has to hear it. You know the old joke, of a tree falls in the forest, no one hears it. Does it you know, really exist or whatever the word... Did it make a sound? Is that it? Somewhere in there is a saying, I don't know. <laughs> the Word of God has inherent power. And this is an important concept in Scripture all its own. John devotes the first part of his gospel to it. God's Word immediately and completely accomplishes all that it declares merely on the basis of its existence. And you know what? The Word of God itself tells you that. In Isaiah 55, 11, the Lord says... So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It's like a think of it as as power personified. You know it's it's an actor of its own. Isaiah says the word of God has inherent power to accomplish whatever God has declared. It isn't a set of instructions waiting to be put into action by some agent or other power. It is an agent of action. It is power. Notice in verse 13 that as Jesus witnesses this man's faith, evidenced by what he said, he responds by saying, it will be done as you have believed. Be careful what you think about those words. He does not say, because you have believed. This is not a quid pro quo. He's not saying, you've done the right thing. Okay, now I'll do something for you. That's transactional relationship. That's not how God works. No, he says, as you have believed. In other words, what the man was saying about the power of God's word was true, and what Jesus says to him in response is, the centurion believed the word of God to be, and so will it now be shown to be, is what Jesus is saying. And then instantly, Matthew says, the slave was healed back in the home. Now, here's a fun moment to imagine. Where was the centurion during all of this? He's back in the home. And I imagine he's at the bedside of that slave. And I'd like to think about how this whole moment went down from his perspective, sitting there by his slave, miles from Jesus, kilometers, whatever, distance from Jesus. All of a sudden, he's watching a servant, and he just gets healed like that. No longer paralyzed, no longer tormented, no more fever, sits up, I'm fine, instantly. Now I ask you, was the centurion surprised? Well, perhaps he was startled by the moment, because he wasn't quite sure exactly when it was going to happen, right? But I don't think he was surprised. Not by the outcome. He knew Jesus was willing already because he had been told Jesus was on his way. So he knew Jesus was already inclined. He was simply waiting for the word to accomplish what the will of God desired and then it's just a matter of timing. It's just a wait on God. He was probably sitting there fully expecting it, not sure how long it would take and just waiting for it to happen. Man, that's faith. That's that's serious faith and I'm not, I don't think I'm overstating it. This example this story i think friends is a good picture a good reminder illustration i guess of why this church and in my opinion every bible believing christian should care so much about the word of god you recognize that in this book that we all carry around or have on our phones or whatever we don't just find you know convenient truths it's not a wisdom book what we find is not just truth but the power to bring it to pass in this form in this written form that as we read it as we declare it as we study it and as we seek to understand and live according to it good things happen the word of god has the power to strengthen relationships it has the power to break habits to heal hurts to bring repentance and ultimately to save souls that's why we care about it and those things come to pass just like with the centurion in god's timing There's no doubt that what God has declared will happen. It's just a matter of the timing of it, according to His will. And the power to bring them about is also in the Word itself. And it's an altogether different power than what you would find accompanying the words of some ordinary person, for example. And I think the church has really gotten messed up on this in the recent decades. We've really lost sight of this. And to understand what I mean, let me just give you a simple example. For example, if we raise the question in here, how should we help men be better husbands to their wives... You might come back with, well, we could have a, a, an accomplished counselor who teaches a seminar for a group of men and, and explain to them how they could be better husbands to their wives. And, you know, we make sure we get a guy who's eloquent and he's smart and he knows everything. He gets, he's got his act together. He's got good slides. And, and, and he presents, you know, the proper principles and he uses good examples. And, um, you know, he could just have his whole act together and do a really good job. And then in the audience, you have a bunch of guys nodding their heads in agreement and committing themselves to apply what they've learned. And we've all been in situations like this. We know how this works, right? But regardless of how it goes down or how much agreement there is in the room, that instructor's words, just the words I'm saying now, have no power by themselves to bring about any positive change at all. You see what I'm saying? There's no power in the word. I mean, what he says might be true and sensible, and the men might feel better, and they might have you know, great intentions out of what they've heard. And, and, and frankly, some might implement it, even, to some degree. But good advice and psychology only find their power for change in the will of the individual who receives that advice. That's where the power, if there is any power at all, it lies in the individual to, to in their own will, do what they've been told. Right. So let me ask you this. How much trust do you put in your own will to accomplish lasting eternal good things inside yourself? I mean, if anyone's at all honest with themselves on this, the answer is I think I'm pretty lousy at it. I mean, I get good days, but there's certainly a lot of things I don't do really well. We're very selective in our self-assessment on this, you know? The things that we find easy to fix, we're very proud of. I like I tell people all the time, I've never stolen uh, money from a bank. I've never killed anyone. I am totally in control of those concerns, right? I have no... I don't even think I've ever seriously... Well, maybe... Well, just for a moment contemplated killing someone, but not really seriously. You see how we do that, right? But And so if there is someone around us who has that problem, we're all over that. We can tell them five, you know, five different ways to solve that problem. But it's the stuff we do routinely that we conveniently sort of sweep under the rug in our heart. All I'm saying is this. The Word of God has a power to do things. We have no power to do. No one else has power to do. And yet, the mechanism that is teaching from Scripture, words on a page, that mechanism looks a lot like what we do in other contexts. They look so similar, we might be quick to assume I can substitute one for the other and get to the same result. But what we're forgetting is it's not just words on paper. There is a supernatural power behind it that you can't see. That is, it doesn't show up on the page But it does show up in reality. It does show up in real life. And you know why I know that to be true? Because I could turn, for example, to Ephesians 5.25 as an example for the moment. And I could read this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then down the page. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now, those words, they might sound very similar to some spoken by a marriage seminar teacher. In fact, they might not even be a tenth of what he said. They might not even seem nearly as impressive as the other stuff on the slides. But here's the difference. Those words come with power. The Lord has given every believer in the church His Spirit inside you, guiding you into holiness, impressing upon you Christ-like thinking and living. He's like a spiritual engine just turning inside you Working out changes that need to be made if you're going to be living and and thinking and acting more like Christ. That's the gift you've been given as a starting point in your walk with Christ. And that engine inside each of us has the power to make changes that we, in our own will, have no power to make. And in time, husbands, hearing the Word of God, will experience things like conviction and In time, their hearts will be softened. And in time, their behaviors may change. And healing will begin. And godliness will take hold. But like all engines, it needs fuel to operate. And the fuel for that engine, the Bible says, is the Word of God. So how much spiritual change you experience in your life as a Christian will depend, at least in part, on how much fuel you consume. I can read Ephesians 5 and treat my wife differently when a weekend marriage encounter seminar didn't get me there, if it doesn't come with the word. You won't fully realize what I'm trying to tell you unless you see it the way the centurion saw it. That is to say that you have to recognize the word of God has an inherent power that nothing else can equal. It's not the power to convince you. It's not the power to teach you. It's a power of its own apart from any of that. I tell people the stories of my own walk in Christ as an example of this, and I've got a bunch of them. But you know, a simple one like like using profanity is one I like to use because I got saved when I was in the military, and you know, life in the military, profanity. Well, you know, it used to be that that was the worst. Place. You know, we used to say talking like a sailor. Now it's pretty much moot because everybody talks like a sailor nowadays. It seems right. The world just has gone crazy with language, among other things. But back in that day, 25 years ago, whenever it was, it wasn't quite so bad. And I remember after I became a believer, that side of me just sort of changed. There was, a, there was an instinctive feeling inside of me that that was no longer what I wanted to do. It wasn't that I felt I shouldn't do it or it was bad to do it. It was different than that. I didn't want to do it anymore. It didn't make me feel good to say those words anymore. I felt bad when I said them instead of good. Who made that happen? It wasn't like somebody sat down and explained to me why I shouldn't do it. The Word of God, in the power of its convicting me, made me think and feel differently about what I was doing, without me having to necessarily decide that for myself. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, how much easier is that than to have someone convince you? You know, if you're really trying to make your life more Christ-like, how much easier it is it to have Christ make you want what's right, that is to say, give you the desires of your heart, than it is for you to be rationally argued into doing it? Which of those two do you think is going to be a more effective strategy? That's the difference between human logic, human words, human teaching, and the power of the Word of God. That's what this guy understood. He understood, apparently, two deep theological truths. That Jesus was the incarnate God, God in the flesh, and that His Word had inherent power over the creation. And that was so astounding. You notice it even impressed Jesus? Jesus. When Jesus heard this man, he genuinely, it says, marveled at this faith. Now, this is one of those moments in the gospel where you kind of get to see a little moment in which the deity of Jesus is being limited by his human form, which we've talked about here in the past. That is, Jesus is not pretending or lying or exaggerating here. He literally did not expect to hear this response from this man. The spirit in Jesus had not anticipated or told Jesus to anticipate this. So Jesus was able to be genuinely surprised as any other human being would be. And we know that because he'd already begun to walk to the man's house. He wasn't expecting not to go. He says, this guy's faith is such that it's not even equaled by anybody in Israel. That's both condemnation and praise in one statement. It's, It's condemning the Jewish leaders, the Jewish society, for not having the same appreciation. Remember, this is a Gentile centurion, and yet he just had tremendous insight into Jewish theology, which means he had to spend a lot of time in studying Torah under somebody's care, And that study awoke in him a truth about who God is and a Messiah, and it gave him a recognition of these deep understandings, and and now it's led him to eternal life and to seek healing from the Messiah. I mean, this is not... we, We take for granted that we could know all these things. This is pretty remarkable for this guy to know that. And then that study softened his heart toward God's people. It led him to be kind and generous to other Jews, or to the Jews, and it gave him a love and compassion for the weak under his care, and it gave him a confidence in God's Word. You see the pattern there? There's a real pattern for us in that. It starts and it ends with the Word of God. You study the Word, and that brings you to God. And then it changes you to be more like God. And ultimately, it makes you dependent on the Word of God. That your dependence will grow. And as your dependence grows on the Word of God, so will your desire for God. And for the people of God. And as your love grows, so will your reverence. So, you might ask, well, why didn't the Jewish people see this stuff? I mean, it's right there. He found it. Well, you know what? Jesus actually tells us why. But later, in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus, speaking to the Sadducees, says this, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, and that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? You see, it's twofold. You have to understand what it says, yeah, but you've got to understand the power of God behind it. You know, you get get legalism when you don't understand what this says. You get liberalism when you don't understand the power of God, when you try to make it all secular and humanistic. You've got to have both. Back in Matthew 8: 11 and 12, Jesus says, "This centurion's trust in God's word is an example that proves how many Gentiles will be in the kingdom. He says, there will be many from the East and the West who sit with the Jewish patriarchs at a banquet table in the kingdom." This is not metaphor. This is literal. That is to say, after Jesus' second coming, when He returns to this physical earth, bringing us with Him, He will set up a thousand-year kingdom, the Bible says, right here on earth. This earth again will be His home, and His kingdom will be here. The kingdom of heaven is a term in Scripture referring to the thousand years of us living back on this physical earth with Jesus in our resurrected, glorified bodies. And Jesus says that at the beginning of that thousand years, the whole thing kicks off with a great big party a kingdom banquet, a feast. It's actually the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in attendance at that feast will be all saints, Old Testament, New Testament, all of us. And obviously the patriarchs will be in attendance, probably seated near the head of the table, I guess, some unbelievably huge table or lots of tables. And who wants to do dishes at that party, by the way? And Jesus says, in addition to them, there'll be people from east and west. And what he's referring to, of course, is all Gentile nations. All Gentile nations will be included. So, as I see you right now, I'm telling you, your future, we're going to be sitting at a table together, and I don't think it's very long from now. I mean, I don't think it's a whole, I don't think it's centuries from now. I think it's going to be a lot sooner than most people expect, frankly. We're not going to be long. We're going to be sitting at that table, and you're going to be saying, Steve, gosh, you were wrong about so many things, but you were right about this table. (laughs) Isn't it exciting to think about that, that we're going to see each other? We're going to, I tell people all the time, we're going to walk down the streets of the, of the world of the kingdom, and we're going to bump into each other once in a while. So, you know, think about that next time you annoy somebody here. <laughs> you might want to, you know, play for the, the long term and, and be nicer. But Jesus says, you know, there's going to be some people missing from that moment. People who expect to be there, and more than that, they're probably thinking they get the choice seats. He calls these missing people the sons of the kingdom. It's a stab at a particular group of people because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had come to calling themselves sons of the kingdom as a way of sort of piously, self-righteously anticipating that they were guaranteed the kingdom because of all of their piety. And then he just flat out says, no, none of your nonsense is getting you a ticket to that table. In fact, only faith in the power of Jesus' word, like the centurion just showed, Get you a seat at that table. Instead, he says, you're going to be taking a place in the weeping and gnashing of teeth that goes on in outer darkness. And in Matthew, these are some of his favorite terms for a specific place called the lake of fire, which is the final eternal abode for all unbelieving souls, all unsaved. In the Greek here, uh, Jesus literally says, the weeping and the gnashing, which is a way of emphasizing how intense the sorrow and the anger will be for those who go through that experience. The Bible is filled with ironies like this. Ironies in the sense of so-called wise men who are really the fools. And at the same time, you have these supposedly lost and forgotten people who were actually the ones being remembered by God in His plan. So that just raises a question for us. What determines who will be who in that arrangement? What What do you think the answer is? Well, it's what you believe about Jesus and His Word. That's it. That's the dividing line. That was the dividing line in this story. What do you believe about Jesus and His Word? Remember what Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's where it all starts and ends. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, in our study, we've learned, Father, that as Your Word created all things, it drives the course of all things. We've learned that a man, by his exposure to Your Word, could come to understand that deep, an important truth, even as those around him who had had the word for centuries missed it. And we understand, Father, that where we stand with you and whether we will see you in that coming kingdom will rest on what we believe about you and your word. I pray tonight, Father, that all who have heard what has been spoken will have searched their hearts for whether it is true, and in finding it to be true, Father, will have confessed that your Son came as promised, the Messiah. Jesus, dying to save us from our sin paying a price we could not pay and by our faith in him granting us eternal life in this kingdom that we await and then for the room of believers that sit before me now and I know so many who are in your care already by faith and and we're so thankful that that is true Father nonetheless remind us all through your word tonight that your word is what matters most to you you tell us in your word that you honor your word even above your own name So what does that require from us? That we not turn it aside for human wisdom. That we not ignore it and spend time reading the latest bestsellers when what we have before us has everything we need. That we would always consult it first and foremost and that all that we might hear elsewhere would be compared against what you have given us in this eternal book. And by its power, Father, changes. We ask, Lord, that we would be more like you because we know, Father, that That's your desire for us. Set our minds and our hearts on obeying what we learn. And by your power, Father, give us the desires of our heart matched to yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name.